2 through 24. And on the back of your sermon outline, I've listed a number of passages. Uh, This one I'll be reading is a, a starting point for us. And this is that familiar conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well in Samaria. And, and I just want to draw your attention to one part in the middle of this conversation. And Jesus says to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So far the reading of God's Word. Last Sunday morning, we had a visitor here with us who was an evangelist, and he was a good evangelist. He was an evangelist for the Oak Cliff Sailing School, which is right here in Oyster Bay, three blocks right down South Street, right down there, and I don't know if you knew, but here in Oyster Bay, this school is the training center for the U.S. National Sailing Team, and And instructors come from all over the country, and students come from all over the country hoping to develop the skills that they may sail on the U.S. Olympic team and for the America's Cup. And it is, according to this gentleman who was with us, it is electric. And after the service, he began to speak with a few of us of his love for sailing. Now, he enjoyed being with us, but he also really enjoyed his face lit up as he talked about sailing. And his passion for sailing just overflowed. And he said, you know what? If you're interested, Pastor John, I'd like you to join us on Tuesday night. Come on down on Tuesday night. We have a practice Tuesday night. We go through our paces, and then there's a practice race. I've never sailed in my life. He said, come on, don't be afraid. It'll be fun. And afterwards, we have a fellowship meal together. So I went. And it was a great adventure. What was going on? What was happening there? What was happening is that the Oak Cliff Sailing School instills in their instructors and in their instructors, and especially in their students, a passion for sailing and a love for sailing. And part of their mission then is to encourage them to spread the joy of sailing wherever they go. And that's what this young man was doing very well, I might add. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like the church. The church filled with passion, filled with love for her Savior and deeply aware of her mission, what we studied last week, We're studying this mission of the church over this week. The Great Commission to go and make disciples. But you know, before you can go make disciples for Jesus, what we learn in this passage and this conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well is that before you can make disciples for Jesus, 
you must first love Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit this morning with you about the fuel for evangelism and the fuel for missions. We have 19 brothers and sisters from this church sweltering in the heat of Haiti, working among the poorest of the poor in the world in a very dysfunctional and broken country. Why would they do that? Give up their vacations. Why would they do that? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they first love Jesus. And we have sent a team of worshipers who have first a heart of worship that they want to then welcome others into the worship of God. Isn't that beautiful? And that, of course, is true, I know, for all of us. That is what all of us want to do. You know, you need the fuel before you can drive the car. About 30 years ago, I sat in a little conference with uh, a relatively unknown preacher named John Piper. And John Piper has become one of the leaders of the missionary movement around the world. And he did a little seminar for 12 of us for a whole week at Westminster Seminary. And I just happened to be there. And it was the, the, the basis for this great book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And it really has set the pace for thinking about evangelism and missions around the world. And, and, and that book came out of that, those sessions that we had together. And, I, and it's so much on my heart. I want to share a couple of things that, are, that, that John Piper says the church must know before she can go into the world and make disciples. And you see the outline in, my, in the sermon outline. The first point is very simple. God is passionately committed to the fame of His name and that He be worshipped by all peoples of the world. Very simply, God has a passion to be worshipped. Notice what He says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, this is strange. What does God need? What does God need? God doesn't need anything. God is independent. God is perfectly self-sufficient. What would God need? What would God seek? Something he doesn't have? And yet, here we are told, maybe the only place in the Bible where it says God seeks something, the Father seeks something, what does he seek? Worshippers. And around the world, billions and billions of people have no interest in him, or they have images and idols that they bow down to, but the living and true God seeks something. He seeks worshipers. And Jesus says that it has to be done right. Notice, he says, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. And I think it often surprises people when they learn that God is not always pleased with their worship. You think God would be thankful that I'd give up some of my precious time to come sit in the pew and sing a few songs. He should be thanking me for being here. It's not how it is, my friends. 
Did you know, back in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, right at the beginning of the Bible, Cain brings an offering of worship to God, and it is not acceptable. We're told that right away. You read on in Leviticus chapter 10, that strange incident. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? Does anybody remember Nadab and Abihu? Who were they? They were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. And they said, we need to jazz things up in our worship a little bit. We need to make our worship a little more interesting. Why? And what shall we do? Let's get some fire. And they get this strange fire and they offer it to the Lord. And it is not acceptable to God. And they are destroyed on the spot. The worship of God is a holy, holy, holy moment. And we are, according to Jesus, we must worship in spirit and truth. What does this mean? To worship in spirit? Well, he says God is spirit. And he's saying that worship ultimately is spiritual, my friends. In the Old Covenant, there were all kinds of what we call types and shadows. It was very physical. It was very concrete. You had had, um, robes that the priests wore, and you had sacrifices, and the blood ran, and you had lavers filled with water for the washing, and you had candelabras, and you had incense, and it was all very physical. But Jesus says, now things are changing. Those were just shadows. Now the reality has come. Worship must be spiritual of the heart, of the soul, not just outward performance, of the Spirit of God meeting with our spirits, and then it must be in truth, right? What is that? Not just heat, but also light. And so it is God's Word that informs our worship and informs our whole life, really all of life, is worship before God, but in in that unique time that we have where, what is worship? Worship is the surrendering of ourselves before God and acknowledging Him in His glorious greatness, giving Him, the living and true God, the glory due His name. And I wonder, in your own private worship and in our gatherings here on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, do you do that? Do I do that? Surrender myself to the Lord. All that I know myself to be, I give back to my Creator and my Redeemer, my King. Oh, friends, as much fun as we have in this church, as much delight we have, and as much uh, joy as we have being together, let us never forget who is at the center of our worship. It is God. It is God. And He is worthy of our praise. We want this in our church. It's funny, the, um, the woman at the well, <clears throat> she hears Jesus talk about this, and then she says, well, essentially, when the Messiah comes, I guess, I guess that's what's going to happen. And you remember what Jesus said to her. I am he of whom you speak. Wow. The hinge of history has turned. Jesus Christ has come. 
and worship now is not in Jerusalem. It's not in a temple or uh, in, in anything tangible. Worship happens all over the earth. Wherever the people of God are, wherever the Christian is, worship occurs. Some of you are studying the, the teachings of, uh, with Martin of Randy Pope there in the Journey Group, and you're learning about having private worship. Have you learned how to have private worship? Where you, you don't have to get on your knees, though you might feel like it. You could lie in bed, you could sit on your bed, you can drive in your car, you can sit in the park, in your favorite chair, walking on the beach. But you can worship God anywhere. It's private worship. Sing His praises. He's with you. And then on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, we celebrate His resurrection from the dead and His enthronement over us, His people. And we come. We come not reluctantly. Do you come reluctantly? No. We come eagerly to worship together. Psalm 96, verse 3, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples, Proclaim that he is exalted. And Elias read from the final psalm, the last of the 150 psalms. And we heard him say, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And then the very last line of the entire book of Psalms, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Do you experience the warmth of the sunshine? Who gives the sunshine? Who gives the rain that waters the earth? Who gives the air that fills your lungs and moves you forward with strength? Who is love? Who is light? Who is the one who planned our redemption? Who is the one who accomplished our redemption? Who is the one who applied our redemption of the cross to us? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we are told in Romans 15, verse 9, and John Piper makes a big deal out of this. He says in Romans 15, verse 11, that Jesus came into the world in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And in a very real sense, the pinnacle of our worship of God is the appreciation of His mercy. Right? I'll tell you, if He treated me as my sins deserve, what would happen to me? I would be a cinder smoldering before your eyes. But He has not. He has been merciful. How? Through the cross, through the blood through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, of whom we sang just a few minutes ago, holy, holy, holy is Jesus Christ, slain and sacrificed in my place, that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. And so we shall do, not just on Sundays, but for eternity in heaven. Revelation uh, the book of Revelation, remember that picture in chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for with your blood you purchased men and women and children for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
He has done it, and we give Him praise. Now, let me just say, simply point number two, some people at this point accuse God of being an egomaniac. He wants all this worship. Probably the leading atheist spokesman today is Richard Dawkins at Oxford University. And there is nothing that delights him more than saying, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians. This God is an egomaniac, and he utters relentlessly these blasphemies against God. He is truly a despicable person who delights in dishonoring our God. And his charge fundamentally is that who is this God who's got such a big ego that he needs praises? Well, how would you answer him? This God who seeks worshipers, is he just an egomaniac? How would you answer him? The answer is that God's passion for his own glory is not egomaniacal, it is righteous and it is loving. And that can be said of no one else. Listen, God is righteous. Righteousness simply means that He loves with an infinite and perfect love what is valuable and what is infinitely good. God values what is good. God loves what is good. And what is the greatest good anywhere? God is the greatest good. And it is righteous for God to actually love Himself. (laughs) Wow! It's the highest good. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says in that first catechism, shorter catechism question, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? But I submit to you, what is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy Himself forever. And we see that in the beauty of the Trinity, don't we? As God the Father delights in God the Son, and God the Son delights to give glory to God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit is self-effacing. He says, I don't want any praise. I just want to glorify the Father and the Son. It is remarkable, their love within themselves, for themselves, for Himself. It is righteous for God to love His own glory. I, I could want your praise. I could pat myself on the back. I do that far too much, and that is putrid. That is not good. That's just my own arrogance. However, God cannot be accused. I am sorry, Mr. Dawkins, you are wrong. God is righteous in His love of His own glory, and actually, He is good and loving in the display of His own glory. It's actually to our benefit that He discloses Himself. Did you know that? I hope you feel that. I hope you feel it at times when we're singing together, and when He draws close to you, and He's he's like He's given you a hug. He's given you a kiss. I'm showing myself to you because I love you. That is God's very nature. It's a loving act 
Jonathan Edwards used to say, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet. It's another thing to know the taste of honey, to taste the honey, right? That's the good thing. Our worship, we want here in our church family, we want it to be more than just the intellectual apprehension that God is sweet. We want you to know Him intimately, to celebrate who He is. It would kill me, my friends, it would kill me if people leave this church on a Sunday morning, if they leave the church and they say, I don't know nothing about God. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? If they walk out of your home fellowship group on Thursday night or Tuesday night and they say, I didn't learn anything about God. I don't know God. That would be terrible. In our Sunday school, our youth group, for it's all about God. And then point three, the joy of worshiping the Creator is a joy to be spread. And our friend from the Oak Cliff Sailing School made that very clear, didn't he? The joy that he had in sailing, he couldn't contain it. (laughs) He had to share it. He was compelled. He didn't get any money from it. It was actually a lot more work for him. It was a lot of work having me on his crew that Tuesday night. He had to work extra hard because I was the the weak link in the race, and they didn't want to lose the race. He had nothing to gain, but he couldn't keep it in. Come, sail with us. It's a joy to be spread. Some of us think that doing evangelism is merely trying to get other people to agree with what we believe. That's not it. Of course, when a person is converted, they come to know the truth, and so in that sense they will come to agree with us. But evangelism is not about getting other people just to agree with us. It is to share the joy and to eagerly welcome people, to share our joy together. That's what evangelism is all about. And the fuel for missions, the fuel for our team in Haiti, the fuel for your neighbors and colleagues at work is that you yourself have joy that you want to share. I wonder, what is worship like for you? In Isaiah 12, verses 3 and 4, it goes like this. Therefore, with joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. That's where it starts. That's what's first. With joy, you shall draw water, glug, 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 and drink from the wells of salvation. And with joy, you will say, that is wonderful. And how does the verse continue? And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. And that's the order. You, you drink and you have joy, and then you go and you say to your neighbor, your family member, your colleague, your classmate, come, drink with me. Come and worship our God. 
There is something wonderful about the shared experience of glory. Have you ever had two friends who don't know each other, but you know that these two friends would really hit it off? Have you ever had that experience, you know, this person over here and that person over there, they don't know each other, but I bet if they got together, they would, be, they would just form a fast friendship and, and they would be such a blessing in each other's lives. What do you want to do? What do you do about that? You say, I'd like you to meet my friend. I think you'd really enjoy getting to know him. Why? Because you yourself can sense, you have, you have a, a joy yourself in the relationship with these two and you want to see it go and grow. Our friend at the sailing school had that in spades, didn't he? You cannot give what you do not have. You can't give it away unless you have it first. But oh, my friends, when you have it, you can't keep it in. So point four is very simple. You need to hear the words of Jesus here. Finally, we come to point, point four where we read that the global cause of Christ cannot fail. That God, who is so worthy, will be worshipped. And I get this out of this little phrase where Jesus says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. Did you hear that? The hour is coming and is now here where the worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship in, in spirit and truth. And it cannot be stopped. The clock has ticked down and the ball has dropped. It's here. Christ is risen. Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church and is going to the ends of the earth. And the Father will call His elect from every corner of the earth and they will come. Jesus said, I have other sheep, not of this fold. They will, will, will hear my voice. They must, must, must come. Why? Because the grace of God is irresistible. The calling of God will happen, and when He calls, people answer. When He calls, it's not like He's standing at the door saying, please come, please come. The call of God is a summons that is inexorable. When He calls, people rise. He speaks to the dead and they come, they rise. He speaks to the lame and they dance. He speaks to the deaf and they hear. He speaks to the blind and they see. Oh, my friends, they are coming. I must bring them and they will listen to my voice. The blood of Christ was not spilt in vain. That's how we know. He, with His blood, has purchased men, women, and children for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now you, what do you do? You go. You go into the world filled with joy. You go. You go worshiping. Why? Because you are a worshiping child of God. And you, you've got to tell somebody. Yeah, this, uh, this sailing evangelist was a good shot in the arm for me this week. He had to go visit his parents in Connecticut this Sunday. He says, I'll be back next Sunday. 
I'll introduce you to him. I want to be like him. And maybe today, maybe you have felt God tugging at your heart, poking at your heart a little bit. And you could honestly say, I have not been the worshiper that I should be. Your own private worship, your devotional life has gotten cold and soft maybe. So, so perhaps this is a good day for you because God is stirring something in you. And I don't care if you're 12 years old or 50 years old. God is at work in every one of your lives. He's going to speak to you now. As we come to communion, He's going to speak to you now. And I believe He wants to stir our hearts and warm our hearts and give us that fuel for the mission of the church. That fuel is what? It's worship. It's joy in knowing Him. John 4.23 says, the Father seeks worshipers. Is He seeking you today? Can you feel? Can you hear His call? Come and worship me. Don't worry about the person on your right or your left, what they'll think of you. God is seeking you this day to be His worshiper. Isaac Watts, he wrote the words that we should sing not at Christmas, only at Christmas time. He wrote, Joy to the world! The Lord is come! Let earth receive her King! Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You and praise You for Your mercy to us. And we pray that we would become worshipers, the worshipers that you seek, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would give ourselves completely to you, all we know ourselves to be. You are our creator, and you are our redeemer. And we confess that it is righteous and loving of you to display your glory to us and to enjoy your glory. Thank you. Thank you. Forgive us. Some of us would say right now, forgive me for being casual, for being like Cain or Nadab and Abihu. for just wanting to be entertained. Forgive me, Lord. Make me the worshiper you want me to be. I want that. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.